Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show that originally aired on May 18th of 2017. All right. Um, Most of the shows that we do, I think more of them come from our producers than come from me. But this is a show that I wanted to do. It's a show about castles because I've been thinking a lot about castles, about the fact that, yes, everything happens in castles. I mean, not everything, but from Elsinore to Winterfell to from Gormenghast to Rivendell. I mean, if you think of sort of what happens in the imaginative world and the historical world, a lot of things happen in castles. And I really do think that, you know, if Game of Thrones took place in an office park or something, it just, you know, people wouldn't like it as much. They like the fact that it's in castles. We like it when there are things that happen in castles right now. Of course, there's the new King Arthur movie out right now. It doesn't make any sense to me that Camelot would be a castle if it's the 5th or 6th century. But then since it's all basically made up, they can say anything they want, I suppose. But so, but we, it's almost like Camelot has to be a castle, even though that doesn't really make any sense, at least not to me. Our guests may say otherwise. But it has to be a castle because people want the castle. So why do they want the castle? Why do they want it so much? Why is it so important to us? Um, as we go along here, towards the end of the show, we're actually – we're going to talk about um, – because, in fact, we don't have castles here in the United States unless we build them now you know, or recently. Um, but we'll talk to uh, somebody who actually participated in a reality TV show that took place in kind of a fake castle. Uh, we'll also talk to the head of collections at the Yale Center for British Art where they are celebrating the art of the castle. Uh, and But right now we're going to begin with Mark Morris, a medieval historian and author from London. His latest book is Castles, Their History and Evolution in Medieval Britain. We're also talking to Victor Lodato. Uh, he's a playwright, poet, and novelist, and he's the author of the award-winning Matilda Savage, and his newest book is Edgar and Lucy. Uh, But why he's especially germane to our conversation is that um, he wrote quite a bit of Edgar and Lucy in a very old castle in Italy. So we'll come to that. So um, let's begin with you, Mark Morris. And I think the first thing we need is a working definition of castles. There are a lot of things that call themselves castles and there are things that don't call themselves castles that maybe are. So what makes a castle a castle? Um, Hello in the first place. Yes. Um, Well, I think – the, the working definition of a castle for a long time in sort of um, British academic circles was it was a, um, a both a sort of a combination of a fortress and a palace. Um, so it's a heavily fortified home. And the, the, it's the home bit that people often forget. Whenever I speak in um, schools, particularly to young children, I get them to sort of say, what makes a castle? And people, of course, rattle off. In fact, it is true of any age, really. People will rattle off towers, battlements, portcullis, um, you know, drawbridge, arrow loops, towers, moat. You know. And they list all the exterior functions which are designed to keep you out. But then you start to say, well, what happens when you get inside? And, of course, inside a castle, you need a great hall, you need chambers, bed chambers, you need a kitchen, you need a bakery, you need a brewery, you need stables, you need a smithy. So you need all the things, in other words, to service a great 
household in the Middle Ages. So it is that combination of, on the one hand, extreme luxury, and on the other hand, um, state-of-the-art armaments that make a castle, and make the castle really a unique thing in terms of um, Western civilization. Um, and it's, it's a building which is really synonymous with the Middle Ages. You know, one of the things I think for people here in the U.S., uh, we struggle maybe to understand what's a castle and what's not, and you've done an admirable job of, uh, of setting the guidelines. But for example, Downton Abbey uh, was, when we saw it on screen, it was really something called High Clear Castle. To me, that looks like a, a manor house or something. Yeah, well, it's, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, Downton Abbey, yeah, it's, it's, it's a stately home. I mean, I'd class that. It's, it's built much later. I mean, the, the thing is... Um, uh, this is a slightly old-fashioned way of approaching it, but when, when, if you go back to the Roman period, say, uh, in the British Isles or indeed in Europe, if you look at what the Romans did, the state was responsible. The Roman state was responsible for matters of defence. So if you look at the periphery of England, where it meets Scotland and indeed in Wales, you'll see um, the Romans built forts for their legionary soldiers, which were about housing um, a state army. And when the Romans themselves, rich aristocrats, because they were non non-military types, they were administrators, the aristocrats, they built very elaborate, non-defended villas. Mm. Um, and the same is true over Europe. And later on in the Middle Ages, uh, sorry, when the Middle Ages are over, and say the 16th, 17th centuries, once again, the state has taken responsibility to, for defence and is building garrison forts. Um, and the aristocrats are again living in undefended stately homes. So if you think of something like, say, Hampton Court, mm. would be the beginning of that trend, or any later English stately home, they tend to, some of them will be called castles out of nostalgia, but they are generally called halls or courts um, or palaces. Um, and it's, it's the period in between, so the 500 years between 1066 and, you know, uh, the, the, the 15th century, end of the 15th century, where you get that fusion of domesticity um, and a sort of a, a, a warrior elite, um, that fusion of the domestic and the military, which creates the castle proper. All right. So let's put this other question to bed then. You just said 1066. Uh, Arthur would, if Arthur had existed, Arthur would vastly predate 1066. Um, yeah. I, I, was, I assume Camelot would be kind of an encampment or something rather than a castle. The thing is with Arthur, I mean, as you say, did he exist? The answer, if you've got your head screwed on the right way, is no, he didn't. I mean, the, the sort of agnostic answer is we don't have any evidence. Um, but the tales about Arthur are set um, in the late 5th or 6th centuries. Because the tales about Arthur, Arthur is a Briton, i.e. he is uh, someone who had... Um, He's re representing a culture of kind of late Roman Britain at the time when the English or the Anglo-Saxons are invading England. So in the 5th or 6th centuries. Um, now, in recent years, I mean, there was a dreadful um, uh, Hollywood uh, film stuff with British actors about a dozen years ago, with Keira Knightley and Clive Owening about King Arthur, which also bombed at the box office. Um, that was also set in this kind of um, fifth century dark age um, at the sort of the, the uh, once the Romans had left. Um, the thing is, Arthur doesn't take off as a popular literary figure until the 12th century mm -hmm. when he is written up by a mischievous monk called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who writes the history of the kings of Britain. And from that point on, 
the Arthur story effectively becomes the Harry Potter or the Game of Thrones of its age. <laughs> so it becomes an absolute medieval bestseller. There are more copies of Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain uh, still surviving than any other book apart from the Bible from medieval England. So, you know, if you could only afford two books in medieval England, you had a Bible and a copy of Geoffrey of Monmouth. So Arthur is by far the most popular bit. So the stories he's telling, Geoffrey of Monmouth doesn't set them in the 5th or 6th centuries. In, or he, if they do, but they are described. He's describing the society around him. So he's describing a society of knights and castles and kings. So the reason um, you have these two versions of the Arthur story is there are modern interpretations trying to say, well, what would it have been like in the 5th and 6th century? And there's the, the full-flown Geoffrey of Monmouth high medieval version, which is all full of knights and steeds and castles and chivalry which is, frankly, I think, the sexier version that ought to be done for cinema. You know, I'd like to see, as you say, a glittering Camelot and with, you know, uh, Sir Lancelot, um, you know, on his noble steed and et cetera, et cetera. All right. So uh, I want to add Victor to this conversation. But before we do, since we've invoked Arthur uh, and the Clive Owen version and there's so many other versions as well, we should also talk about um, or just reference briefly some people who have done a great violence to the romance of castles. And that, of course, would be our friends in Monty Python. Here's uh, an introduction to Swamp Castle and Monty, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. One day, lad, all this will be yours. What, the curtains? No, not the curtains, lad. Oh, what you can see, stretched out over the hills and valleys of this land. That'll be your kingdom, lad. Mother. Father, lad, father. But father, I don't want any of that. Listen, lad, I built this kingdom up from nothing. When I started here, all of us were swamp. Well, the king said I was daft to build a castle on the swamp. But I built it all the same, just to show them. It sank into the swamp. So, I built a second one. That sank into the swamp. So I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one stayed up. And that's what you're going to get, lad. The strongest castle in these eyes. There you go, Swamp Castle. Who could turn that down? Apparently, uh, his son could. Uh, all right, so uh, let's add Victor uh, Lodato this, to this conversation. Um, tell us how you came to be writing a novel. Not a novel set in a castle, not a novel set in medieval times, not a novel set even across the Atlantic. How did you, how did you come, come to be working on such a thing in a castle? Well, I, I was in Italy uh, for a book tour when my first book, Matilda Savage, came out. And I met uh, a couple who said they ran an artist residency called Castello in Movimento um, in Massa, uh, near Tuscany. And um, they loved my book, and would I be interested in coming there to write? And I had already started my second novel, Edgar and Lucy, and I was working happily at home. And so I said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. And um, since I got home, I Googled Castello in Movimento. I hadn't heard of this residency, and I saw... Oh my God, that's a real castle. It's a thousand year old castle. Um, and so, and it was gorgeous. And so I immediately wrote them back and said, uh, yeah, I think I would like to come, uh, to work there. And they said, well, you can come for two weeks up to six weeks. And I said, um, maybe six weeks. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was interesting. The family lives in Florence, uh, most of the year because the castle is basically unheatable during the winter. So they're only up there part of the year. 
And when I went to visit them in Florence, on the way up to the castle, we stopped at a villa, another residency, and I remember seeing the room where Bruce Chatwin wrote in Patagonia and being very impressed. And I said this to my host on the way to the castle. And he said, oh, that's very nice, but at the castle you'll see the room uh, where Dante stayed and where he started uh, the Divine Comedy. <laughs> so, uh, and that was the only room that was closed off in the castle. The, the room, the bed where Dante supposedly slept uh, was still there, and they showed me the cliffs uh, down below the castle that supposedly inspired some of the imagery of the rings of hell in the Inferno. So what does being in a castle for six weeks do to your mind, to your imagination? Did, did it really make a difference that you were in a castle? Did it cast some kind of putative spell over you? It absolutely did, and it was, it was very hard to leave, but I will get to that. But, the, you know, the, it's still a living castle, and that the family still lives there part of the year. Their children are there. Um, and they gave me free reign to wander around and to you know, just go through it as if it was my home. Um, so I was often up early before the families and would always find something new. It seemed like every day for weeks I was getting lost in the beginning, you know, finding new passageways, new terraces, new stairways, um, just uh, unexpected vistas. And uh, and it was it was just, I, I felt like I that architecture allowed me to move into a different place in my own head because... When you're working on a novel, of course, you want the same thing. You, you want to find all those unexpected rooms. And so somehow the architecture of the castle sort of suited the architecture of my imagination. And Edgar and Lucy already had sort of the beginnings of a Gothic feel. There were some ghosts in it. There was an albino child in the novel. Um, and then at the castle, um, the, uh, Pietro and Madalena, my host, started telling me stories of the ghosts in the castle, including an albino child who was imprisoned in the basement. And I thought to myself, you know what, I was maybe feeling a little embarrassed about these big, crazy, gothic, emotionally hot <laughs> aspects of the book. But being in the castle allowed me to get over any shame I had about that and just sort of dive into it. So that's so great. That's the perfect way to put it, too. You know, in a castle, you don't have to be embarrassed about your <laughs> gothic dreams. So, Mark, I want to swing back to you. You know, Victor is telling us about what sounds like a very satisfying castle. But an awful lot of castles... I mean, one visits them and we American tourists, we get very excited when we hear there's a castle around the next bend. But a lot of them are kind of disappointing and, and few of them, I think, conform to whatever romanticized set of ideas that we have about what a castle was. You know, a castle that, that perhaps functioned in times of war and but also was a place where royal people lived. Are there such castles? Are there castles that really are the kinds of castles we have in our minds? don't know what kind of castles you have in your mind that's the problem i mean i i think the the, the perhaps the disappointment um that people experience when they go to a castle is if it's ruinous mm -hmm. um they might you know they say well perhaps i expected more interiors i've certainly led tours where people have sort of said well i i thought we might get to see more interiors and you know of course there are castles i am speaking really as in my with my castle expert hat on exclusively for for the british isles um, but there are castles in the British Isles that are, many of them are still lived in, but if they've been lived in up to the modern age, they've in, in, invariably been customised. Mm. So um, you'll sort of be told, well, this is the library, and this is the, the, the room where his lordship watches television, and this is the room <laughs> where he plays snooker. And it's kind of that, for me, is kind of like just looking around any stately home. Um, mm. What fascinates me when I go to a castle is if I can find a castle which is, say, built in the late 14th century, and then 
quickly, if the family falls on hard times and the castle is neglected and falls into ruin, then it's a much better window into the world of the late 14th century because it is sort of set in aspic, as it were, if it hasn't been updated. So then you can go around picking out the clues and saying, look at the way this kitchen is designed or look at the way... This is an absolutely textbook medieval uh, you know, domestic arrangement. So I think we're certainly with you know, ruinous castles, you do have to work your imaginations that bit harder and they might not conform to your fantasy ideal. Um, but often, you know, I, I, personally speaking, I mean, there's a castle very near to me called Leeds Castle, which is kind of world famous. Um, and it is a beautiful castle. But what, largely what you see there is, is was built in the 19th century. The, most of the interior was completely leveled and rebuilt. Um, now, those buildings, if you are into uh, sort of romanticism and what the Victorians imagined the Middle Ages to be like, then you're going to be in hog heaven if you go to such a building. But as a medievalist, I'm kind of impatient with that. And I, I want to visit castles, say, built between the 11th and the 15th centuries because they are bona fide, as it were. Um, Victor, you alluded to the fact that when it was time to go, uh, you weren't entirely happy about that idea. I take it you probably haven't, hadn't finished in the novel and it had this whole castle thing going at this point. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, it's that thing of, you know, it's almost better not to have ever been given that kind of luxury and to have it taken away. It was very hard to come back to my 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 little apartment and finish the novel. Um, but um, uh, I would recommend anyone to have the time to live there. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, in, in relation to what you were talking about and in relation to the imagination about the castle is that, you know, for all the glory that I was talking about, all these wonderful hidden passageways, um, you know, in any work of art, you want there to be light and dark. And the castle sort of is this place where the entire universe exists in one architecture. I mean, you go everywhere from, you have like the lavish feasts, all the wealth, the jewels, wine, dancing, romance, and then, then there's the dungeon and chains and prisoners and cruelty. And, um, and, so, um, and so it was really amazing to be in one place where you felt like the whole universe and all aspects of human nature could exist in a single architecture. That was sort of, I can't imagine a better place to work on a novel where you want all those things. So, um, Victor, we talked a little bit about this before showtime, but, um, you know, one of the things that we have here are not many castles in the United States. I mean, we don't start out with any, you know, indigenous kind of legitimate castles. So, but what has happened is that tycoons all up and down the coast have, in fact, built castles uh, there. There's one in Gloucester, Massachusetts. There's one in the Thousand Islands. There's a famously Hearst Castle in California, not far from that, in Calistoga. Uh, there's uh, a, another castle called Castella de Amorosa uh, that uh, was built that, that has a dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> with a functional Renaissance-era Iron Maiden. Uh, it took 14 years to build. They often take a long time to build. They sometimes um, are not completed when their uh, tycoon owners uh, have their lives completed. Uh, and so there are some some loose ends that don't get tied up. But, you know, as somebody who has to sort of uh, – I mean, well, first of all, what do you think these people are going for? And, and do you think they get what they're looking for? Somebody like you who's, uh, who's castle experienced, what would you say mm -hmm. about that? Well, I've been, I've seen the castles that you're referring to, and I, and I, I even have been inside a few of them. And I think what they're going for is probably the obvious that they, they want to sort of proudly demonstrate uh, their power and wealth, um, uh, and that they are above everyone else and above the world. 
and live in extreme luxury. Um, but you know, there's it, 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 the project. I think usually fails if uh, if you look at it in, in certain ways because those those old castles can't be imitated. We don't have the craftsmanship. So we don't have sort of the stone um, to build those structures. And you're inside them, and you know what they're trying to imitate, but it always feels slightly phony. And I think it comes down to, for me in the castle, one of the most profound experiences was the nature of light and candlelight on that particular old stone. It, it hits you at a very cellular level. I mean, you see the light and you think, oh, that light from the old master's painting wasn't just made up. It existed in rooms like this. And, and that light and that, that stone that hits you at a cellular level, that doesn't happen in those other castles. They're an imitation, but they, they, don't, um, they, they, don't, they don't come alive in the body um, to me in the same way. Mark Morris, is modern castle a contradiction in terms? Can there be a modern castle? I don't think it's a particularly uh, contradiction in terms. No, I mean, I think the thing is, castle is a very kind of uh, hard term to pin down. I've defined it as a, uh, a fortified dwelling or a strongly fortified dwelling. Um, but, you know, you will find examples throughout British Isles and beyond where um, you'll find an Iron Age hill fort that's called a castle or some, you know, some, some Scottish whiskey merchant might make a fortune in the 18th or 19th century and build himself a large stately home in the shape of a castle and it's known as a castle you know and it, it, it's kind of rather judgmental going out you know and saying well I, I i'm afraid you have to be built before 1500 and you have to have this these particular features so i kind of think you know if you want to build a building and call it a castle fine i think the thing to understand though is and this is going to be obvious if you're going along the east coast looking for you know 19th century castles built by rich industrialists um the, just you know as long as you're aware that this building is telling you about the ideas of, of 19th century industrialists and what they wanted to celebrate and what they thought the Middle Ages was like. Because, mm. um, you know, the, the risk of sounding trite, these buildings are reflecting the, the mentalities of, of their age. They're telling you about what people thought of the Middle Ages in the 19th century rather than the Middle Ages themselves. But just, just as one rider to that, this talk of kind of like, you know, if... Um, if it's not built in a particular period, then it's not a true castle. Um, the, it begs the question, when were true castles? Because there are plenty of castles built in late medieval England, say the 14th and 15th centuries, which have the apparatus I mentioned earlier. So they might have a gatehouse, they might have a drawbridge, a portcullis, arrow loops. They might bristle with all these things. And yet when medieval um, historians like myself have come to assess them today, there's one particular castle in the book I talk about called Bodium in Sussex, which is about the most castly castle you can possibly picture. It has all the accoutrements you'd expect, plus a, a shimmering moat. When you come to assess those from a military point of view, they're absolutely useless. And so the, the, the thing is, these late medieval castle builders are building castles because they, even in the 14th century, wanted a fantasy home. They had this, this Arthurian ideal of a castle that said it had to have all these gatehouses and it had to have all these, 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 these fancy things stuck on the outside. But by this stage, they are largely for show. You, are, you have these architectural features because they are the trappings of an aristocratic house. They are militarily redundant. So, you know... It, if, if uh, some, and often they're built by people who have no military background. You know, you might be the king's treasurer and make an absolute fortune from, you know, creaming off your 10 or 20% from the king's treasury. 
But when you come to building your own palatial home, the model you're going to go for is a castle. So you build a, a castle-shaped house. So there's, there's, it begs the question, is there ever a true age of the castle? You know, if there is, it's probably the 12th and 13th centuries. But um, I think just to round off this very long answer, you know, <laughs> if, if people call it a castle at the time, who are we to argue with them? Yeah, we could argue. Uh, all right, so we're going to take a little break here. I want to thank uh, Victor so much, Victor Lodato, playwright, poet, and novelist, the author of the award-winning Matilda Savage. And now his newest book is Edgar and Lucy. When you read it, think New Jersey Gothic. Think about the castle that he wrote it in. It's in the it's set in the Pine Barrens, but uh, there's ca there's a castle somewhere inside it. Um, I just want to quickly say, I usually say it at the beginning. I'll say it now. Well, we're doing something that we do periodically on this show today. I'm a little late in telling you, but that doesn't mean you can't can't go back to the beginning. We're doing what we call Radio for the Deaf, which is, in fact, um, a uh, broadcast, I guess that's the right word, a streaming uh, up onto Facebook Live, up onto the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook Live. Uh, it's not me. Uh, it's two wonderful signers, uh, to, oh, excuse me, interpreters, uh, JK and Mary Sue. They're here with me today in the studio. They are, Mary Sue is signing what I say. JK is signing what the guests say. So these interpreters are sharing this show in American Sign Language on Facebook Live. Uh, you can see it there. Um, and you can experience it uh, if you are deaf and have not, never therefore heard a radio show. This is as close to that as we can make it. Uh, and uh, so we're very excited to do it. Uh, and the interpreters are wonderful. And uh, we hope you'll take advantage of it. Again, the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook Live, the whole show will be up there, interpreted in American Sign Language. Okay, we're going to take a break. Mark Morris is going to come back with us. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the reality. We talked now about the way these things switch through our imagination. Let's talk a little bit more about the reality of castle life. Men like Galahad and Sir Lancelot always did the things I'd like to do. Physically, I'm not as durable, but romantically, I'm incurable, and I'd like to do the same for you. Have you got any castles that you want me to build, baby? Have you got any dragons that you want to have killed, baby? You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show that originally aired May 18th of 2017. And welcome back to the show. The topic today is castles, both in our imagination and as physical and historical reality. Mark Morris, medieval historian and author of um, the, his latest book is Castles, Their History and Evolution in Medieval Britain. Um, he's uh, with us uh, and has a lot to tell us. A little bit later, we'll talk to Edward Town, head of collections, information and access and assistant curator for early modern collections at the Yale Center for British Art, where they are celebrating the art of the castle. Um, so, Mark Morris, um, I want you to tell me uh, a story, a historical story of a castle that, that maybe would be recognizable to people who get most of their castles from Game of Thrones and various versions of the Excalibur myth and, and Harry Potter. And, so, and, and what I have in mind is the true story of King Edward the Confessor and Earl Goodwine. So g give us a sense of, of that castle story. Oh, cripes. Well, I think you might have gone back rather early. I mean, uh, this, we, we were talking about this before the interview um, uh, with, uh, with relation to the Game of Thrones-type atmosphere that, mm -hmm. that, um, that existed in 11th century England. Um, 
in, 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 in ten, before 1066, really, you are in a land without castles. Mm-hmm. Because castles are introduced by the Normans coming in in 1066. Um, I think the reason we talked about Edward the Confessor and his, his father-in-law, Godwin, um, was simply because uh, these were people who were perpetually each other's throats. <laughs> um, one of the things I, I did mention was um, uh, that um, in that period, um, this is a, the thing is, the Middle Ages, when I say I'm a sort of a student of the Middle Ages, or I've been doing the Middle Ages for the past 25 years or so, um, people assume that the... the the ideas these people had in their heads were very much like the characters in Game of Thrones, so that the Middle Ages was incredibly bloody mm-hmm. and bloodthirsty. Now, that's true up to a certain point. And in, in England in particular, it's true before the Norman Conquest of 1066. And it becomes increasingly true maybe in, from the 14th century onwards. But in the period that I particularly specialise in, the um, post-conquest period, say, in the 12th and 13th centuries, it's not so true um, in that people treated each other um, in a way that you'd essentially summarise as chivalrous. Mm-hmm. Once they had defeated their opponents in battle, uh, which rarely involved killing them because they're so well armed, i.e. They were, they were covered in plate armour, um, once they'd surrendered, you spared them and you locked them up. Now, prior to the Norman Conquest, the, 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 the sort of a contretemps you mentioned between Edward the Confessor and his, his uh, father-in-law, Earl Godwin, um, results in, you know, sort of Game of Thrones-style violence, so people being scalped and blinded and beheaded and sold into slavery and uh, all kinds of nasty stuff. After the Norman Conquest, just a generation later, warfare is still incredibly brutal. But once people have surrendered, the Normans treated each other and indeed treated their defeated opponents chivalrously, i.e. they spared them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that enables them to do that, to, to be more chivalrous, is their introduction of castles. Because if you can lock someone up in a tower or a dungeon, <laughs> you don't need to kill them. And once you, um, and then you can start to negotiate for a ransom, so it's more profitable. So castles and chivalry kind of go hand in hand. You need society to get to a certain moral point to make that shift, but you also need to get to a certain level of socioeconomic development because if you have a monetary economy so you can charge people ransoms and if you have the wherewithal to build strong stone fortresses where you can imprison people, albeit in fairly luxurious, under fairly luxurious house arrest if they're aristocratic, then you can enter that late medieval phase of ransom and chivalrous conduct that didn't exist um, earlier in the 11th century. So castles are kind of go hand in glove with chivalry. But back to that uh, original definition of, of a castle, the, something that had uh, both uh, defensive slash militaristic purposes and domestic purposes, I assume for most of the time the domestic pur- uh, purposes were the important ones, the notion of just having a place from which one could run one's economic empire, be it big or small. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound terribly sexy. I mean, but when you're taken to a castle as a child, you know, you you like to dwell on the, the blood and thunder aspects of it. And, and you know, you're always, I've got small sons of my own, and we like going down to Dover Castle and sort of charging around with our sort of foam swords and foam shields, etc. <laughs> but you know, as you grow older, you realize that these are essentially, they are homes to the super rich. They are homes to the richest, maybe top two or three dozen people in medieval England. So if you sort of try and translate that to the modern period, you think, who are the two of 35 most, the richest people in America or Britain today? It's those kind of people building their houses. And of course, those, the super rich tend to be the most powerful. So they are powerhouses. 
And what is going on within the castle walls is, of course, plots are being hatched. The most lavish feasts you can possibly imagine are being thrown. Uh, murders are perhaps being committed. Uh, marriages are being consummated and heirs fathered. So, you know, it's kind of, as your previous guest said, all human life is going on there. Mm-hmm. And it is, and it, these are, you know, corridors filled with intrigue. So that also, I think, is part of the castle's appeal in that they are homes to the great, the good, you know, the, the, and also sort of the, the, the wicked and the nefarious throughout medieval history. So that's been my kind of, uh, uh, you know, interest in castles ever since I was small. Um, I was at one point a few years ago bicycling through a, a part of Germany and, and uh, along the rivers and stopped in a town called St. Gore. And St. Gore has a castle. And as far as I could tell, the people who uh, had been in that castle uh, from medieval times had just basically been just jerking people around for hundreds and hundreds of years. They controlled a part of the river that was very helpful to control. And so getting through there, you had to pay them. If you wanted to cross the bridge, you had to pay them. <laughs> and But the thing that disturbed me the most, and, and this sort of, I, I wanted to ask a few questions about just sort of what life inside a castle would have been like, was we were told by the tour as we took this tour that, uh, so the, this castle had a keep, you know, a kind of a towery kind of keep. Uh, uh-huh. And that uh, around the top of the keep, uh, back when people lived in it, uh, there were sort of boards and that when one wanted to relieve oneself, when one wanted to have a bowel movement, one basically stuck one's behind out the window onto these boards and kind of let fly and that sometimes it would even strike soldiers, uh, you know, marshalling down below or just in doing, you know, ground exercises or, or whatever and that that soldier would maybe get a little piece of silver, you know, in an envelope the next day. Sorry for the terrible convenience in, inconvenience. But I just – I mean, talk about de-romanticizing castle life. Um, it does raise the question. I, I guess there's something called a, a garderobe. Is that how you, you say it? Garderobe, yes. Well, I mean, the thing, garderobe is also, it, it, it can mean um, privy or toilet. Um, it also is where we get the word wardrobe from. It's a place where you hang your clothes. Um, the, the problem with toilets is, uh, uh, as you just did to some extent yourself, Colin, is you sort of, we're, we're for some reason prudish about it, and we, right. we don't like to sort of say, this is the house you go to void your bowels, this is the room you go to void your bowels in. Mm-hmm. So you call them toilets, mm-hmm. which means washing originally, or you call them privies, you know, the, the, the private place. You don't actually say, this is the place where you go and move your bowels. So in the Middle Ages, yes, they talked about guard robes, which is a place where you hung your clothes, but it also the, happens to be a euphemism, even in the Middle Ages, for the place where you go to the toilet. Um, you know, that, that kind of story that you were told, is, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's not true for mm-hmm. a minute, but it's the kind of thing that they give to tourists because they, tour guides know how to sort of press people's buttons and they will talk about the blood and the guts or the, 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 the sort of uh, uh, crimes and misdemeanors or the, the toilet humour, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to sort of, um, I suppose, go back to your original point, most of the time, these are houses to the super-rich. And if the super-rich have got their heads screwed on the right way, what they're interested in is maximizing their, their wealth and their profit. Mm-hmm. So this idea that castles are always about fighting is something that I was very keen to dispel in my book. Because as you say, 99.9% of the time, they are centers to the estates of the very rich. And if you take a country like medieval England, which is what my book is primarily about, it's a very well-governed country during the Middle Ages. It's not this anarchic wasteland. It's not a place where uh, people are forever going round arm to the teeth. Um, 
so the castles, is, most of the time, are, are estate centres, and they're, they're sort of you know places where people are feasting or receiving the king. Or um, they would be very surprised themselves to see a, a sort of an army marching over the horizon towards them. Just to sort of stand that on its head, there are of course always places where you get a frontier or a hostile border where castles are more akin to fortresses. The castles that Edward I built in Wales, which is a whole chapter of my book, are absolute state-of-the-art fortresses because they were built in the first instance to hold down a reluctant population that had just been conquered. So you can see that as well. It's, it's, castles is a very catch-all term. Medieval is a term that can stretch to, for a whole millennium, you know, from 500 to 1500. And, um, and of course, Europe is a big place. So that castles are, are all shapes, all sizes, you know... Um, but as I say, to me, they've always been this kind of endless source of fascination because there's no better window onto the Middle Ages, I think, for understanding the priorities of the, the people who are running it than looking at the homes that they built. Well, uh, Mark Morris, you have been uh, a lord to us. You've done a marvelous job of informing us. Uh, if people want to read more of Mark's work, we recommend Castles, Their History and Evolution in Medieval uh, Britain. Uh, so thanks for all that, Mark. We're going to move over here to, uh, for people who are maybe listening, as they say, within the sound of my voice, by which I mean somewhere in uh, Connecticut or nearby Connecticut, and you're now you're really in the mood for Castles. Now you feel as though you'd really enjoy a little bit more uh, of um, an immersion uh, in castles. Uh, well, Edward Town is joining us, head of collections, information and access, and assistant curator for the early modern collections at the Yale Center for British Art. Edward Town, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And tell us about this exhibition. Um, this is a really thrilling exhibition that we have on at the center. So this is an exhibition um, which is the brainchild of um, a handful of our dedicated um, undergraduate student guides who um, work very closely with our education department here at the center and um, an exhibition curator. And they conceive of um, the idea for the exhibition and um, write all of the labels, do all of the research on the pictures, and um, where, where they're around, um, help us install the pictures on the wall. Um, I have to say that um, I can take almost no credit for this whatsoever. Um, my colleague, Dr. David Lewis, um, was the curator working with them on this exhibition. Um, but it is, it, and it's very much, though, the, the student's um, effort. You know, Mark had been talking an awful lot about castles uh, of the Middle Ages. I take it these castles are a little bit more 18th, 19th century castles. Those are the castles, those are the castles we will see depicted on your walls? Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, we've given over uh, two walls, i.e. one bay of our seven-bay long gallery space, which has recently been uh, refurbished at the center on the fourth floor. It's a fabulous space, which we hang salon style. So that is floor-to-ceiling uh, pictures. It's uh, an incredibly rich um, visual experience, and um, we have 33 pictures relating to the theme of the castle. And the students conceived of um, dividing sort of these two walls thematically. So we have the symbolic castle and the inhabited castle. Um, and as you mentioned, um, the majority of these 33 depictions of castles or portraits of people um, depicted in castles date from the 18th and 19th century. And uh, broadly speaking, that reflects the collecting interests of our uh, benefactor at the center, uh, Paul Mellon, 
who um, whose mother was English, and um, he uh, periodically spent his childhood summers at um, Hartford Castle in England. So that's where his mother um, rented um, a home. So I think the um, castles were always very, very dear to his heart. Uh, are there particular artists, artists who would be well known to our audience who are represented in this exhibition? Absolutely. We have um, a fabulous um, oil sketch by John Constable uh, for Hagley Castle, for which the centre also owns the um, large-scale painting from um, which it was derived. Um, this is an incredibly important work for this uh, famous British painter. Um, but also there'll be some lesser-known artists, um, such as Richard Wilson, and our fabulous portrait, oh, sorry, our fabulous landscape, rather, um, by John Martin of The Bard, which is a brilliant picture, um, which depicts the last bard in Wales. It's on a um, sort of, it's a very much a product of the sort of romantic moment um, in British painting. And um, Martin was a sort of a, a painter a, obsessed with apocalyptic scenes. Um, so it is very much, um, the, the mountains are high and we see the the last bard in Wales who is condemned to death by Edward I, who um, is, has decreed that all of the bards in Wales, this subjugated uh, nation, should be put to death. And in defiance, the bard raises his hand um, on the sort of edge of a cliff face um, before taking his own life. Um, it sort of, yeah, it has the, the look and feel of a heavy metal album um, and has a, an awful lot of, of visual impact. This uh, exhibition uh, runs, as we say, from uh, now through August 6th, um, the Yale Center for British Art uh, and its sister gallery across the street, the Yale Art Gallery, are the great bargains uh, of art in Connecticut. The admission is free there. It's a great space to look at paintings. And obviously, uh, Edward Town, you did this to coincide with the resumption of Game of Thrones <laughs> on, on July 16th, right? I mean, this is... Or maybe your students didn't tell you that that's why they were doing it. They didn't tell us. Yeah, we're going to um, yeah, tell ourselves that it was a happy coincidence. Right. But, um, yep. Well, it'll, it'll gin up even more excitement. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have to take a quick break. And then remember how I said there were castles uh, built here in the United States? Uh, we're going to talk about one of those castles and how it turned up on reality television. I'm headed straight for the castle. They want to make me the queen. There's an old man sitting on the floor there Saying that I probably shouldn't be so mean I'm headed to castle You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show It originally aired May 18th of 2017 The Pope's Palace is Castle Gandolfo does that mean that the Pope is a wizard or that Gandalf is Catholic? Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kion Wolf. Our radio for the deaf team includes Heather Brandon, Tucker Ives, Katie Tolarski, Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McPants, Amanda Fish, Joe Koss, and Mary Sue and J.K. from Source Interpreting of West Hartford and the American School for the Deaf. And now...
Back to Colin. So we're talking about castles right now. And I mean, I do recommend spending some time in a castle. When I was working on my book, I didn't have six weeks like Victor, but I spent about a week in a place called Castle Ross in Mount Nugent, Ireland. But see, it was very, it was kind of an unimpressive castle. It was just sort of a big phallus sticking up out of the ground with a, you know, not very persuasive looking, you know, ancient wall around it. Uh, I didn't necessarily feel that I was in some kind of fairy tale. But there are castles here in the United States. Uh, Joining us right now is uh, Brent Bruns II. Uh, he uh, is known and prominently associated with uh, a castle, a castle somewhere in the Carolinas. And uh, we're going to hear a little clip from uh, Doomsday Castle before we get to him. So this is uh, Brent's father, Brent Bruns uh, Sr., describing to his family the importance of having a defendable castle. If the end of days really comes, I want to make sure this family's prepared. We need a fortification that very few people could ever storm or tear down. I mean, in the beginning, everybody would think the government would be here to rescue us. And after about a week or two, people are gonna be in the streets. They're gonna clear out every grocery store, every place there's food. But then it's what happens after that. Someday this castle is gonna be under siege by an enemy starving for food, willing to do anything. So we need to make it a defendable, livable space. All right, that's from uh, Doomsday Castle on National Geographic. Uh, Brent Bruns uh, II is here with us. So your father in that clip, uh, Brent, he's quite serious about this, right? He do, and it's, it's like a bunker. It's going to do what a bunker kind of does, but it's a castle. Absolutely. Uh, my dad, since, uh, since 1999, he thought Y2K, you know, when all the zeros and ones were going to make all the computers go haywire. He thought uh, he thought the world was going to end in, in, in 2000, and uh, so he's been planning. He bought this uh, thousand foot mountain. He built a bunker in the top, and over the years, he's been slowly assembling a castle. And does that sort of help with the state of mind? In other words, we're very familiar with the story of defending a castle from marauders. Does making it look like a castle help you kind of get into that state of mind? It definitely helps him get in the state of mind. Uh, I'm the old, I'm the oldest of ten, so I think in his in his old age, he's really got a kind of a he really wants to protect his family, mm. and it kind of gives him some value. Well, in the show, you decided to test uh, the uh, defendability of the castle in a, in a somewhat old-fashioned way. I mean, one of the ways that we know from stories, anyway, that uh, people might besiege a castle such as this one was using a battering ram. So you made one, right? Tell us about the battering ram. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not really a prepper. I'm a, I'm a city guy. I live in downtown St. Pete. Um, but yeah, I was my, what I kind of, my role was to just, I challenged everything they did. So yes, I, uh, I went and got a, uh, a big tractor and then, uh, uh, sawed down some trees, put some points on them, mounted them on this tractor. And I went full speed into, uh, the drawbridge that they've been working on for weeks. And you'll never guess what happened when I crashed into that thing. What happened? The freaking, um, the battering ram went straight up and I fell off the thing and then the tractor fell backwards. It almost crushed me. So, but, you know, I attempted to tr- to take out that, that uh, drawbridge and failed miserably. That must have been one of the happiest days of your father's life. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it was, you know what? It was scary and happy at the same time. So this, you described this experience as an experience that uh, changed and perhaps even saved your life, participating in this show about this castle. Why would that be the case? Yeah, my dad and my family, they've been going up there, you know, every five or six months for, you know, since 2009 to, to work on that. I have no interest in real hunting and the survivalist aspect, but I did go up there because I was, I was hooked on those Roxy's on pain pills and I was in downtown St. Pete. And, uh, when that opportunity to go up there, to be in the, you know, to go up to the castle, I, I, I literally jumped on it and I went because it, I went up and I was in the middle of nowhere on a reality show for four months and I didn't have access to those, to those, to those dang pills. And I like to say that I'm one of the only people that can say a reality show saved my life. And a castle saved your life, which used to be pretty much the norm. Castles save people's lives <laughs> right. all the time. Yeah, I guess you can look at it that way. It really did, because within the first week of shooting uh, Doomsday Castle, uh, I had two buddies that I kind of ran with, and they unfortunately passed away. So I literally feel I was one week away, and, uh, you know, it really, yeah, you're right. The castle did save my life. And uh, just very quickly, I mean, the whole point of this for your dad was to save his family and keep other people away. So do, does everybody know where the castle is now? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can Google it now. I mean, you can Google Doomsday Castle on uh, on Google Maps, and it'll show you, show you an exact satellite view. But what people don't realize is that you'll never get through our neighbors. Our neighbors are worse than us. So you might you might know where it is on a GPS map, but you literally could never get to it. Even though you know where it's at, uh, you, you can't. I mean, at the bottom of this mountain, there's a big gate, and it winds up and around, up and around. And you just, we, we have, and it's in the middle of a thousand acres. Uh, with nothing but other really even weirder preppers than us. <laughs> All right. So uh, our our listeners are dutifully warned. Uh, thank you so much, Brent Bruns II. Uh, very quickly here, I want to say uh, our show for, for the deaf audience, uh, the show interpreted in American Sign Language, if you go to WNPR slash deaf radio, you should be able to. WNPR slash deaf radio. And I would quickly also tell you, if you want a castle, right now the government of Italy is giving them away. There's certain things you have to promise to do if you get one. And they will, that will cost some money, but uh, look into that anyway. Thanks very much for listening today. Sir, we may have reason to believe that our adversaries in the castle are merely making the sounds of warfare and have no actual weapons. I have to say, I did see this coming. After all, we are battling the Onomatopoeian Empire.